Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would remove the distractions of this past week from our hearts and from our minds, that we might hear your word this morning. Help us to be captivated by it. Help us to behold Jesus for who he is and what he has done. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed change our lives, change our hearts, make us more like Christ, and help us to hear your word this morning and to believe it and to live a life that is radically changed because of it. All for your glory and for the exaltation of our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. I want to begin this morning by telling you a story of a man named Philip James Elliott, most commonly known as Jim Elliott. Some of you may know this story, some of you may not. He was born in 1927 here in America, and as he got older, he wanted more than anything to spend his life telling people about Jesus and declaring the gospel of God's grace to those who had never heard it. Even in college, where Jim met a girl named Elizabeth, his future wife, this would still be the desire of his heart. And in February 1952, Jim found himself in South America, in Ecuador, studying Spanish. Elizabeth would follow him there in May, and that year uh, they would be married, and a couple years later, in 1955, they would have a daughter named Valerie. While there, Jim learned about a tribe of people who had been uncontacted by the world. A woman from that tribe, but who had left, helped him and his friend Pete Fleming to learn this language. And so Jim, along with Pete and Ed McCulley and Roger Udarian and their pilot, Nate Saint, began to search by plane in hopes of finding some way to reach down and contact this tribe. They found a sandbar in the middle of the Kure River that worked as a landing strip for the plane, and it was there that they made this first contact with this people. They gave gifts and even took one of them up in the plane, and things seemed to be going very well. So they decided that they would go back again on a different day to visit this tribe. Unbeknownst to them, however, one of the tribesmen went back and lied about the intentions of Jim Elliott and his friends. And so on January 8th, 1956, as they landed their plane on the sandbar called Palm Beach on the Curray River of Ecuador, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian were greeted by 10 of the tribe's warriors who speared them all to death. When he was killed, Jim and his wife Elizabeth had been married for three years and had a 10-month-old daughter. In his diary, Jim wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And if you get that, and how I hope the Lord will open your eyes to get that, if you get what he is saying there, if you understand what he meant by that, then you understand the point of my sermon today because what I want to do is today is to show you the biblical pillars that undergird that statement. So, if your Bibles are still open, you can turn with me to Matthew 9.35. If you don't have one, you can listen as I read one more time, Matthew 9.35-38. to 38.
There we read, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, there's so many things that could be commented on in this short passage, so many sermons that could be preached. But today I want to ask three questions of the text. First, where is the harvest? Jesus says that it's plentiful, right? It's ready to be brought in. Where is this harvest? Second, why are there so few laborers? And third, how can that number increase? So let's start with the first one. Where is the harvest? We read in this passage that Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages, that great crowds were coming to him, and as he looks upon the multitude of people that are coming to him, he tells his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, right? It's all around. Just look around and see. But you can't see it with your physical eyes. Look around this city. Look around this state, this country. Look at China or Iraq, Eritrea, North Korea, and what do you see? You see ravenous, hungry wolves ready to devour. But if you look with spiritual eyes, if you look with the eyes of Jesus, you see what they really are. They are shepherdless sheep. They have been harassed. They are helpless. We used to live in a a house on the Cooley Peninsula in in Ireland, off the east coast there. And right next to us was this field of sheep. And there was a fence that was blocking off the sheep to get to our house. But this fence was wire, and they had these massive holes in it. And so the sheep would come and get their heads stuck in these holes. And I would look at them from my window, and I would think... This poor sheep, I need to go help it. So I would go outside, and the closer I got, the more frantic the sheep would get and start kicking and jumping, and it wouldn't let me help him. So I would go back home, I'd look out the window, and I'd think, this is what Jesus sees when he looks at us. We are helpless sheep who do dumb things and get lost, and he has compassion on us. He looks at us with compassion. We have to have the eyes of Jesus in order to see the harvest around us, in order to see the people around us as lost sheep and not devouring lions. Let me put some dimensions on this harvest field for you. Roughly 40% of the world's population is unreached. Think about that. That's 3,187,672,000 people have either never heard the name of Jesus or could tell you as much about Jesus as you could tell me about the life and times of Confucius. There are places in the Sudan and Tanzania and Pakistan and India and Malaysia and Vietnam where there's not a single Christian presence among them. There are currently 110 million people speaking over 1,500 languages that have no Bible in their own language. There are at least 1.5 billion people who do not have a full Bible available in their native language. 
We look at some of these countries, though. We look at some of the anti-God, anti-Bible laws that get passed and are coming out of England and even in this country. And we think they're lions, they're wolves, they're vultures. Oh, for eyes to see like Jesus. Oh, for a heart to look upon people with compassion like Jesus. My friends, once you walk out of the doors, the harvest is before you. You may not be called to traverse oceans or to go to a different country, but you are called to be a beacon of light shining in the dark so that others can find the way. Jesus said in John 10, 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The harvest is around. And it is full of helpless sheep, if you have eyes to see it. Well, if the harvest is plentiful, moving to the second point, if the harvest is plentiful, why does Jesus say that the laborers are few? It's because the cost is high. The cost to be a laborer is high. The cost of going into that harvest field prepared to work may not be your money, your time, your energy. It may cost you your life. It may cost you the life of your spouse. It may cost you the life of your children. The cost is high. To bring some of these lost sheep in may require the giving up of your own life. But this cost is not something that our Savior tried to avoid. He came to earth for this very purpose. Luke writes in Luke 18, 31 to 33, And taking the twelve, he, that is Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. When we read Jesus calling on individuals to follow him, this is not a call to travel the comfortable road of life, sitting on the leather seats of a Cadillac as we count how much money we have stored up. No, that's, that's not it. It is a call to pick up heavy, splintered pieces of wood and carry it on your back along the dirt road behind Jesus so that someone else may take that wood, fashion it into a cross so that you die upon it. The assumption of the Bible is that following Christ is a life of persecution. Listen to these these verses, John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Matthew 5.44 But I say to you, love your enemies, 
and pray for those who persecute you. The assumption is following after Christ will lead to persecution. And for some, it may cost them their lives. How's that for a banner of Christianity? Come, join us, follow Jesus, and die. Who signs up for something like that? Nobody. Nobody signs up for that. Unless divine light has so shattered the dark veil over their hearts so that they behold the glory of God in the face of Christ and they see the world around them with Jesus' eyes. Then people sign up. And then like Jesus, as they look upon the world, they're moved to compassion and they're moved to action, knowing that the cost is high. So what I'm calling you to, what what the Bible is calling you to, is fearless harvest labor. How though? Where does this, this fearlessness come from to do this job? Standing by the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he who believes in me and lives shall never die. Again, in John 8, 51, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You will never die. Never. Do you believe that? You won't die. Jesus said so. He who lives and believes in me will never die. But we know that Christians do die. We have funerals. We see their bodies being lowered into the grave. So what's going on? Let me add to this the words of Paul in Philippians 1, 20-21. Paul writes, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That statement makes no sense outside of a solidly biblical worldview. How can death be gain? It's not. Death is not gain. You lose it all. No money, you lose that. Friends, family, toys, fill in the blank of what you love the most. You take none of it with you. It's all loss. Unless, unless when this physical body dies, you're not really dead. And you actually receive something of greater and more eternal value. The psalmist in Psalm 1611 says it like this. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is fullness of joy and pleasures that last forever. And at the center of it all is Christ. It's God in Christ. So for Paul to die is gain because he gets Jesus. He says in Philippians 1.23, I am hard-pressed between the two, 
My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. There is infinitely more joy, infinitely more pleasures at the center, or at the center of it all is the infinitely worthy Jesus. For the Christian, death has not robbed you of anything. It becomes merely the door to pass through in order to receive a great reward. The author of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, that is Jesus' death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Christians can live fearless lives. They can accept the cost of going out into the harvest because the one who had the power of death is defeated. The fear of death has been removed. Christ has died and rose again and he says, trust me, believe in me. I am the resurrection and the life. Believe in me and you will never die. To which Paul adds, Not only do you not die, you gain. How I wish you would believe that. Not just in your mind, but down to the very core of your being. That kind of thinking, living that kind of reality is what moves 28-year-olds to go to Ecuador to die on a riverbank, leaving behind a wife and a 10-month-old. If you were to ask Jim Elliott if it was worth it, his answer would be a million times yes. If you were in Hebrews following along in chapter 2, you can jump to chapter 10 if you want, beginning verse 32, because there we read this. The author of Hebrews says, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. The author of this letter is drawing his reader's attention uh, back to the time when they were first converted. And he's reminding them, at that time you had to endure. Right? It wasn't easy. There were struggles. There were suffering. There was reproach, affliction. John Piper has said of this passage, quote, in the former days... After the Hebrew Christians started to see the glory of Christ and to shine with the glory of Christ, they also started to suffer for Christ. That's what Christianity meant. Receive Christ and receive suffering. Evidently, they thought things or said things or did things that were not politically correct in those days. And the upshot was that some of them got arrested and some others got in trouble because they stood by those who got arrested. That's what the author of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 34. He says, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So some of this group here had been imprisoned. They were thrown in jail. And their response was not to run and hide, but to identify with them and to have compassion to remember those who are in prison. And what was the cost? Their property was plundered. Maybe people smashed their windows, broke down their doors. Maybe their homes were broken into and their possessions stolen, homes set ablaze. All their stuff 
is taken from them. But listen to what the author of this book says of them at that time. He says, and you joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully. Who does that? Nobody does that. Unless all that is taken is of less value and worth than that which you already possess. Right? The author says, you joyfully accepted the plundering. You gladly let them take your stuff. Why? Since you yourselves know you have a better possession and an abiding one. That sounds a lot like Psalm 1611 to me, right? Better possession and an abiding one. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. To speak truth, to declare Christ as supreme over every leader in this world, to declare that God made mankind male and female, to stand against the tsunami of pro-abortion laws and propaganda, to declare that the world, what the world needs is not more laws but a savior, will result in reproach. It will result in suffering, affliction, plundering of property. How can God's sheep out in the harvest hear and believe that Jesus is our greatest treasure, that we value him above everything, all that we have, if we're too afraid that somebody's going to confiscate our iPhones or our laptops or our car or remove us from our jobs. I'm preaching this sermon to myself as well. Since we know that we have ourselves a, a better possession and abiding one, we say, take the phone, take the car, take the, the house, take my life, take it all. Because you can't die, Jesus said so. Let me give you one more example from the book of Hebrews. For the very next chapter, and that's Moses. In Hebrews 11, 24 to 25, we read, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh, or son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Right? Here's the choice set before you. Be honored and live like a king, or be mistreated and live with slaves. Well, who wants to be mistreated? That doesn't sound good. Surely to live in a, with a king in a king's palace is far better than that. Unless, unless there's something better than living like a king. And Moses saw that clearly. The pleasures of sin are fleeting. They're not enduring. They're not abiding. They're not everlasting. He chose to be mistreated now than to be enticed by the pleasures that disappear as soon as you have them. But how could he do that? Verse 26 of Hebrews 11. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses looked to the future, to the reward, an eternal reward, which is not fleeting. Commenting on this verse, Dr. Wright says, quote, Hebrews sees this, interestingly, in terms of an implicit loyalty to the Messiah himself. Moses was looking ahead in the long purposes of God to the moment when the true king would come. 
The one through whom Israel and the world would finally be set free from all slavery. Moses, like Abraham and the others, was therefore acting on the kind of faith which Hebrews is highlighting throughout this chapter. The faith in God that looks to the future and knows that God has planned something better than anything we could accomplish for ourselves. One one last example from Hebrews. In the next chapter, chapter 12, we look to Jesus himself. Hebrews 12 begins in verse 1 like this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. These these Hebrew Christians joyfully accepted the plundering of their homes. They had all their possessions taken. Moses rejected life in a palace for the mistreatment of slavery because the reproach of Christ was greater wealth than all that Egypt could offer. And finally we see Christ himself enduring the cross, not begrudgingly, not resentfully, but with a view to the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. My friends, the laborers are few because the cost is high. The cost is high. It's choosing mistreatment as a slave to living in palaces. It's accepting the plundering of your homes. It's the giving up of one's life. The cost is high. But the reward is is infinitely worth it. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive a hundred times as much and shall inherit eternal life. The, the cost is high, but the reward is great. Well, third, if the cost is high and the laborers are few, How will the number of these laborers going into the harvest increase? How do we see that number grow? Matthew 9, 38, he continues on. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So how does it increase? The answer is pray. It's pray. We must pray, and specifically, we are praying to the Lord of the harvest, the one to whom the harvest belongs. It's all his. We are praying to him to raise up men and women from this country, from every other country, to be sent out as laborers into the harvest. We must pray, because it is only a miraculous work by the Holy Spirit of God that can take an individual who is so in love with this world, so in love with stuff, and open their spiritual eyes to the reality all around so that they're willing to give it all up to proclaim Christ, knowing that hardships and afflictions and suffering and death await them. And so we must pray, and we must pray in confidence because this is what God has called us to do. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson has written, quote, this then is the prayer of faith to ask God to accomplish what he has promised in his word. That promise is the only ground for our confidence in asking. Such confidence is not worked up from within our emotional life. Rather, it is given and supported 
by what God has said in Scripture. So we read here, pray. It's a command, right? It's an imperative. This isn't a suggestion like, this would be a good idea. Why don't you try to do this and see if this works? No, this is a command to pray because in so doing, labors will be raised up and they will go out into the harvest. We'll get ready here in just a minute to close in prayer. And at that time, God may use that time, that prayer, to raise up an individual in another country, an individual in this state, an individual in this room, to go out into the harvest. The cost is high, but the reward is infinitely great. So let us pray more. We'll have their eyes open to see Jesus, or to see as Jesus saw. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, how we do pray that you would give all of us here eyes like Jesus. Help us to look at those around us with compassion. Even those that seem to us to be wolves and vultures. Let us hear Jesus' words to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, to have compassion on them. Because the harvest is all around us. Help us, Lord, to have that same attitude that those Christians, that the author to the Hebrews was writing to. That if we have that mindset of compassion on those around, we acknowledge that that may result in the plundering of all of our stuff. But let us say, who cares? Take it. I don't want it. I've got Jesus. What more do I need? Take the phone, take the money, take the car, take our lives. Should that bring you glory and should that bring more sheep in, Lord? Because our Savior has said, I am the resurrection of the life. You won't die. Help us to have that deep within our hearts, Lord. If that is our attitude, if that is our mindset, what amazing things could happen in this city if we live like that. Help us to be fearless as we go out into the harvest, Lord, relying not on our strength, but on the strength of our Savior. Help us to be bold. And may we live our lives in such a way that we bring you glory, serving and honoring Help us to know, Lord. Help us to know that should we live another 50 years or should we go out into the harvest and find that we die tomorrow, it's gain. We get Jesus. Let us love nothing in this world more than the thought of getting Jesus. Help us, Lord. Help us to have this mindset. Forgive us when we stray and our eyes moves to the shiny things of this world and we forget that there is a glorious sun behind us. 
We want to live for your glory, Lord. Empower us and help us to see the harvest, knowing that the cost is high. May we live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.